0: Yeah, that's good. How was your Thanksgiving? Good. What is the worst Thanksgiving food of all time? Like, it gets brought and nobody eats it? Black eyed peas. Black eyed peas? I agree. If that was brought, I would not eat it. (laughs) What else did you say, Amber? Pink stuff? Yeah. Some people make other variations of that. Did you were is that your your favorite thing, the orange stuff? <laughs> yeah. No marshmallows, yeah. My wife made her It's usual normal for me now, uh, sweet potatoes, but it's it's not like the candied yams or anything that you can get it's just her normal sweet potatoes that she makes that are basically like cooked with a little bit of oil and a few a few spices and and uh everyone at the table was like I normally don't like sweet potatoes but I need the recipe for these um they're really good yeah so it can be a really wonderful time um I hope that your Thanksgiving was a wonderful time. I had a great time. Um, It really can be a a wonderful time full of joy, uh, full of fellowship, um, full of good food. I I convinced my dad to make roast elk this year. It was, it was, mm, mm. I didn't even have any turkey (laughs) because the elk was that good. (laughs) It was good. Um, it's a time for deepening relationships as well Uh, when you're when you're with people that you love uh, family and friends it's a time to just be with each other and to deepen relationships sometimes you're not with those people very often all right I was with my parents I see them a few times a year I saw my aunt and uncle and cousin for the first time and I don't know A year, a couple years maybe. So not very often do I see them. They had not yet met my youngest son until this Thanksgiving. But it was a time for us to enjoy being around each other, um, deepening those relationships. Um, I know there was even here in Wichita, um, uh, Eschaim served, at another Messianic congregation served at a a community gathering. Um, I praise God for that and that they were able to help a, a, a church. Um, where they were having a Thanksgiving for many people who may, may have not otherwise had a place to go. And those are wonderful opportunities to do as well. I know I did that one time when I was a teenager, where in, instead of having a family Thanksgiving, we just went to the community center and served Thanksgiving to people who didn't otherwise have a place to go. And that, that's a really great time, too, um, just serving and loving your neighbor there um, could be a really great thing, too. Uh, for some people... Thanksgiving can be uncomfortable. It can be painful, even. Um, Especially if the people that you're gathered with are people that are difficult for you to be around. Um, Maybe due to their behavior, maybe due to a strained relationship. Sometimes it can be an uncomfortable time uh, to be around other people um, like that. And, you know, in... At other holiday gatherings in our culture, you have the sim similar opportunity for pleasure or for pain <laughs> uh, i want to I want to read to you guys an excerpt from a book that was written by my uh, it was it was written about so i have a, I have a grandfather my fourth great grandfather he uh, was a pioneer of sorts he came from virginia he was Grew up on a plantation in Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley and um, then moved to Missouri. And then moved in 1878, he came on a wagon to Ness County, Kansas. Um, So Kansas had been a state for, let's do our math here, 17 years? Is that right? Come on, 1861, right? Yeah, so 17 years. Yeah. But Ness County hadn't, had not even been incorporated yet, really. Like, it was just, it was pretty much nothingness out there. In In 1870, earlier in 1878, um, there was a, a, a massacre that occurred in Ness County um, before my grandfather moved there. So this is my fourth great-grandfather. Um, he was a settler in, Made a homestead claim in Ness County near Bazine, and uh, this is from a book um, about their settling. And in in this book, he's referred to as Pap. Okay. Um, It says, Pap never seemed so happy as when he could gather his children and grandchildren about him for a family reunion. The one big day of the year was Christmas. Then we all went to Pap's for a full 24 hours. Of feasting and good times, everybody for miles or for miles around managed to drop in at the Coles. They were the Cole family, okay, at the Coles on Christmas Day, and all were welcome. As many as three hundred people have eaten Christmas dinner at Paps. No one ever went away hungry, and many carried home enough food to last through the following week. When a professional baker moved into the country. And into the county one summer. Pap hired him to bake the cakes for the following Christmas. 24 of them, the baker turned out, all huge affairs. But the piece de resistance was a giant baked in grandmother's wash tub, and all, cover, all coated, co, co, coated all over with candy and fancy frosting. At these come, at these come one all... Come one, come all reunions. Old feuds were forgotten. And many a prairie boy and girl owe their existence to the love affairs which grew out of these neighborly get-togethers. <laughs> hmm. I hope that your Thanksgiving was as joyful as, as with other people in the same vein as my ancestors enjoyed their holiday gatherings. Um, the joy those experienced, not in the material elements the savory dishes the plentiful desserts that we have but the joy was for them and is for us most important coming in the relational presence that we have together with one another that's where the joy comes i can go eat good food by myself okay that doesn't give me a whole lot of joy i have i have been there done that okay I have, I I lived for a couple months when I was a bachelor um, on a job assignment in another city and I lived in a hotel for two months um, and I ate in the hotel restaurant every day for two months and I had everything on the menu more than once um, and I ate by myself and it was good food, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't very fun because I was by myself I didn't have joy in that, right? Um, the joy comes in being together in relationship with each other. And that's what I want to talk about today, um, the, the importance of relational presence, okay? Um, and this is something that I've emphasized here at Remnant of Israel, and I'm not the first one to emphasize it, but I'm going to continue to emphasize relational presence at, at Remnant. Um, and what I want to talk a little bit about today is how relational presence stands alongside theology, Okay, how, how relational presence stands alongside theology. Um, it's really a crucial component of a healthy congregation, how it does this. And in fact, once you are walking in agreement on close-handed theological standards, relational presence takes over and allows us to function as a healthy, godly covenant relationship with each other, rather than us battling or dividing over the minutia of open-handed theology, we, we build one another up, not necessarily in full uniformity, and allow for diversity on those open-handed issues, right? As we walk together on, in the kingdom of God. And, and that's because we have relationship with each other right? And on top of that, the relational presence actually enables us, okay? It, it enables us to come into alignment with each other on these things, especially on the critical issues, theologically speaking, the close-handed ones. It enables us to come in, into alignment. And what I, mean, what I mean when I say that, I want to I share a little bit of a story with you. So um, at Sukkot, I, I read a pretty long ex- excerpt from the book, the Gospel Comes with a Husky, by Rosaria Champagne-Butterfield, okay? Um, Rosaria, she was a lesbian feminist professor at Syracuse University um, back in the late 90s. And she was working on a book, uh, Opposing Christianity. She formed a relationship, though, um, with a local pastor there. His name was Ken Smith. And over the course of two years, before she ever, ever went into a church... She wrestled with the things that we consider to be theologically close-handed, like the divinity of Yeshua, right? Is he who he says he is? Is the Bible true? Like, really critical things, right? She wrestled with those, but she would never have been open to them without the relationship she had with Ken and Floyd Smith. They built that relationship with her, they built a trust with her to allow them to dialogue about these things in a way that, that broke down the walls. It enabled Rosaria to come into alignment and eventually into humble submission to Yeshua, where God changed her entirely from the inside out. And uh, she has multiple books that talk about her story. But the point is, is that it was the relationship that allowed that alignment there. Without that relationship, she wouldn't have had that. She wouldn't have been able to come to that position, to that understanding, and the knowledge and saving knowledge of Messiah Yeshua. She would not have been able to come to that. You know, some of, the, some of us though, some people, even though we might be, for the most part, aligned theologically, we still like stiff arm each other. Right, it's like the famous Heisman pose. Like I'm going to keep my theology here, and I'm going to keep you away. And it's not because we're trying to tackle each other. Maybe some people are actually trying to tackle each other, theologically speaking, bring each other down. Um, but we do that when it comes to relational presence. When when we should be huddling with each other, right? I'm going to stop with the football analogies. Um, <laughs> there, there are really many reasons for this, though, this pushing people away, holding them at arm's length, right? Because some people have been burnt by relationships, okay? They've just been burned um, by relationships within the body. Sometimes the, re- the relationships from outside our experience in the body of Messiah cause us to, to feel this way, too. Sometimes people have suffered abuse at, at home, or even in the body, it's happened. Some people feel deceived. People feel deceived by uh, growing up not having been told what the truth about the Lord, you know, or they may have feel deceived by the church. I know that that's a common theme um, when people come here and say, I felt deceived by my church about the Sabbath day or something like that. Um, and what happens then is, though, people carry, tend to carry that, that suspicion or lack of trust with them to the next place they go. Maybe you guys have seen this before. Um, and so what happens is they, people tend to stay more isolated. And the unfortunate thing, sometimes it can be convenient now, we have a culture that makes it convenient at least to stay isolated now, to hold people at arm's length. It's really easy if we want to. Like you could pretty much have a virtual anything right now. Like I could probably have a virtual cup of coffee. I don't think it would taste as good or have the same effect on me, but I bet that they make those. Um, I think at work I probably have more virtual meetings now than I have in person, which is a little bit scary but I think I do, um, <clears throat> you could watch this whole service from your couch right now. And there probably are some people that are doing that right now. Hello. <laughs> to those watching on the couch, I understand today is a day when you may have done so because of weather, needing to stay home, maybe travel. There's people here that travel a long ways. And, uh, and so knowing the, the inclement weather today, it is snowing outside, so... I don't blame some people for watching people from the, watching this from the couch today. You know, we are on YouTube. It can be streamed to your TV. It's super convenient. There's really no extra effort to do so. Um, I, I say that, but I have a love-hate relationship with our live streaming. Like, <laughs> I love that we have it for, for days like today, okay? When we need it, people can't come. Seven people, hi, seven of you who are watching, and those who may watch later, uh, people who can't come, uh, I get, you know, for, because of the weather. Uh, some people can't come, you know, because they're incapacitated, staying home due to illness, things like that. But my, my hate for it is that there's people who watch it on a regular basis, and they, it allows them to feel like they're attached to us as a congregation, that they have some form of a relationship when they don't. Like there might be in theological alignment, but the relationship is missing. when that's the, if that's the sole way that you get fed, you're, you're feeding yourself alone, like I was in that restaurant. You're feeding yourself alone, and it's really not healthy for us. We need that relationship, but we're getting lonelier. I actually read an article um, in a magazine recently. It was titled, America is Getting Lonelier and More Indoorsy. That's not a coincidence. And the whole point of that is kind of what I was saying. We have this really incredible ability to keep other people out of our lives right now. In in a way. It's weird. Like, because we're less... We have less privacy than we've ever had, simply because of, like, online tracking type stuff. We have less privacy. Like, my phone probably knows more, more about me. Like, the kids will watch what we're driving, and they'll see some, they'll say, how does your phone know that we're going there already? I'm like, well, because this is where I go this time of day every week. And, and so it already has that in the GPS that shows up on the screen, because it knows. Even if I haven't put it in there, it just knows. Yeah. Right. So we have, it's kind of a weird conundrum. We have less privacy, right, than we've ever had in our lives before. But at the same time, we have an ability to keep other people out of our life, like real people out of our life uh, more than ever before. And what this does is it creates a vicious cycle for us. I want to read you uh, a little bit of that article. It said, psychologists know that lonely individuals tend to think more negatively of others and see them as less trustworthy, which encourages even more isolation. That's the cycle, okay? You think more negatively of others, they seem less trustworthy, and you want to be more isolated, and it goes in a circle, okay? Americans are spending more time inside, at home, and alone than they did even just a few decades ago. From the 1970s to the late 1990s, Americans went from entertaining friends at home about 15 times a year to just eight, okay? And that was 25 years ago, okay? The end of that study was, okay? No wonder, then, that nearly a fifth of U.S. adults reported feeling lonely much of the previous day during a Gallup poll earlier this year in April. Loneliness has become... A public health buzzword, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy calls it an epidemic that affects both ment- mental and physical health, and I would add emotional and spiritual health too to that. It wasn't the focus of the article, um, but it does. And i I also say that COVID recently made it a lot worse. Right? COVID enhanced a lot of these abilities to be isolated, but it made it worse because mandates created feelings of isolation or actual isolation. And there, I mean, there were. People, elderly people in nursing homes that literally died of loneliness. Like they, they were so lonely, they, they didn't have a reason to live, and they gave up living, and they died because of it. And that happens to people. And it, that's the harm that comes from loneliness, is that it reduces the reason for life. God created. God created life, and he reduces the reason for that. But our culture it has a propensity for increasing isolation, even though we know that it's harmful. That's what our culture is doing, and that's the trend that we're on. So it's not, it's not surprising to me that because of that, um, we see some people that, want, that are more attracted to going to in like a, a church or a synagogue environment and go into a very large congregation, right, where they can remain isolated through anonymity in a large congregation. You can go and get lost. Okay, it's the same thing. It, it is a form of isolation. You might be around a thousand people, but nobody knows you. Right? Um, but I can understand it Somewhat because of our culture. And there's really a level of attractiveness to not being involved. There is, in a way, because there's a stickiness to relationships. A stickiness. If you like you ever made scones like by yourself? Like, it's like actual, and like when you when the dough is really good for scones, it is a mess. Like, ugh that's like the worst part of it, is the cleanup of it. Like, you're ready to get to the enjoyment of it, but the st- it is sticky. Like, it's a, it's, it's a mess. There's stickiness to relationships with other people. And so, with anonymity, getting lost, not, not wanting to be involved in those relationships, there's, there's a cleanliness, right, that happens. And so, that's attractive to some people. Sometimes there's a, that cleanliness. But, Here's the, here's the downside of that that we don't always see. The downside to cleanliness in this context, we see, we see cleanliness in, in, a, in a good thing when you're talking about like germs and other, other ways, but in the sense of relationships, there's the cleanliness brings sterility. It, 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 there's an ineffectiveness in our calling when we are not able to be in relationship with other people. There's an ineffectiveness in our ability to bring others into the warm relational presence and the healing truth of God when we can't even bring them into our own presence, right? That, that's, we're, we're ineffective that way, and so we need to remember that relational presence is critically important, and it's not just because it makes us feel warm, not just because it makes us feel wanted or makes us feel welcome, And not because it makes us, or helps us feel understood, but relational presence is important because God created it to be that way. God created relational presence. And I would tell you today that God's relational presence is the cohesive center of biblical theology. Okay, I'm going to go back to biblical theology. God's relational presence is the cohesive center what what do I mean by cohesive? You what does what does cohesive mean? Teenagers. So bad. Yeah. So bad. Yeah, something that sticks together. It causes something to stick together. Okay, that's what cohesive means. Some things that are stuck together. Co two together things right, and. The thing is that we cannot isolate what we believe about God and Scripture from relationship. The relational presence of God holds and ties our beliefs together. When I talk about cohesive presence, I'm thinking about like a spider web. Okay, like the spider web is a series of radial arm, radial arms, and concentric circles, for the most part, in like a classic spider web. Okay, I'm not talking about the ones that are like just a a mess of stuff Um, (laughs) like the classic garden spider web that you see right Um, that it's got a cohesive center right and and all the major themes of our theology are connected radially or going in circles around it but it's all held together by God in his relationship with us with his people right that's all held together in that way and that's what, it brings one of the challenges, though, for us to understand this idea of God wanting to be in relationship with us, okay? There's, there's this tension, there's an inter- interaction of this tension of happening, because when we think about God, we think about, sometimes we think about God in his otherness, okay? Like, wow, I just kind of God is just incredible, and I can't even begin to wrap my mind around him, right? This is God's transcendence, okay? He, he transcends our ability to conceive of what God is really like in some ways, okay? So sometimes we think about God in that way, but God has other aspects to him too. Another one that, it, it, that we use, term we use in theology is called imminence. Im, immanence. imminence, not, not like something is imminent like it's about to happen, but it's his eminence, as in it's his relationship to his creation, including us. Okay, eminence is his relationship with us, with us as his people. It's how he reveals himself to us personally, okay? So, we seek to, God, seek to know God as he reveals himself to us, right? That's how we seek to know him. He reveals himself to us through scripture, the spirit living within us of course the spirit always aligns with scripture but he's revealing himself to us through scripture right but some people who call themselves christians believe that since the bible doesn't actually use the words relationship with god that we don't actually have a relationship with god because it doesn't use the words i'm not even kidding you okay some people are like hearing this for the first time they believe in religion right and you've probably heard the the phrases about it's about relationship not religion things like that there are people that that truly believe their theology is the bible doesn't say anything about a relationship with god if you don't have one they they follow the religion though okay i would tell you that's a poor reading comprehension <laughs> because scripture describes the relationship all over the place the whole whole of scripture describes relationship right um i'll just give you one example isaiah forty eleven. he tends his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart this is talking about god with his people how does that sound to you does that describe relationship to you Or does that describe just religion? Like a a God who doesn't want to be with his people, but says this is the way it is. To me, it describes relationship. It helps us to relate to him in a way that we understand that he is tender with us. He loves us. He holds me when I need to be held. And if we ignore this understanding of the way God reveals himself, then we're constructing a false God. We are. We're constructing a false God if we ignore that. A God who doesn't care about his creation, a God who is not interested in relationship or being with us or us being in relationship with each other. Now, the opposite of that, okay, there, there's, there's, so there's opposites here, right? One is God is not interested in being involved or being in relationship with cre- his creation. The opposite of that, of believing that, is, a, is someone who believes that God interacts through everything all the time, Okay, that's like the extreme end, right? They talk about people who believe that talk about God being like everywhere and in everything. And I mean, on one hand, it's true. God is omnipresent. Okay, like Jeremiah twenty three, twenty three and twenty four says, "Am I only God when I'm near? It's a declaration of Adonai, and not when God, not God, when far off. Can anyone hide himself in places so secret that I will not see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth?" It is a declaration of Adonai. So it's true in one sense. You know? God is omnipresent. All right, teenagers, say that word. Omnipresent. Omni. Omnipresent. (laughs) Omnipresent. God is with God is everywhere, right? But But to some people, it's like the, it's a, it's, it, it brings casualty in relationship with God because it's like this idea that God is... I mean, well, some people, it creates false gods as well, like God is nature. Like, I'm going to go worship God in that tree over there, right? Okay, that's not really true, though. Um, but it, it brings some casualness to it because God is also present in unique and special ways that really help us to define that relationship very specifically rather than an ambiguous everywhere, anywhere, everything sort of way. Um, As an example, go with me to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So he led the flock to the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to the mountain of God, Horeb. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses thought, I will go now and see this great sight. Why is this bush not burnt? When Adonai saw that he turned to look, he called to him, out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So he answered, "Hinani, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Take your sandals off, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Okay, so this is the the burning bush moment. Familiar story. Moses removes the sandals there because God is present there in a very specific way in a very specific bush (laughs) okay okay for those let's go go back to this omnipresent idea when God is omnipresent it's true but Moses doesn't take off his sandals at every bush okay (laughs) he takes them off at one bush because God is present uniquely in a special way there what's that it's on fire, right? But not every bush is on fire, it's true, but that's what made it unique, too, right? God was uniquely present there. He he revealed himself in a unique way through that fire in that and and, and thus made it holy ground. Now if you go to Exodus nineteen, go with me to Exodus nineteen. All right there at Mount Sinai right now in Exodus nineteen. And if you read verses 16 through 19, it says, In the morning on the third day, there was thundering and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and the, and the blast of an exceedingly loud shofar. All the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the lowest part of the mountain. Now the entire Mount Sinai was, uh, was in smoke because... I had descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked greatly. When the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with a thunderous sound. Okay, so here again, we have God revealing himself in a unique way. Really a terrifying way. Very real and terrifying. I mean, Israel was terrified. The whole mountain was on fire, basically. It's like they, were, they weren't really standing in front of a volcano, but it was kind of like it, okay, um, in a way. It was on fire, it was quaking, there was smoke, like all those things I could use to describe a volcano, right? Um, and so it was very terrifying. They were there. They were hearing God in his voice speak to them. And we see that later, in chapter 21, where, or in, I'm sorry, in chapter 20, where it says, all the people witnessed the thundering, this is in verse 18, and the lightning, and the sound of the shofar, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. So they said to Moses, you, Moses, speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, or we will die. They were, they were terrified of what it was. But yet, God, in His omnipot- he was, he's an omnipotent God. He did not do this at every mountain, right? He did this at one mountain. He did not reveal himself everywhere. But he, in his sovereignty, and this is going back to my last sermon, he's sovereign, he elected to use this mountain. He chose it. And he chose this as a mountain to display his, own, his glory to Israel, okay? He used this mountain not to just show his, the presence and his power, but he also used this as a time to give instructions to Moses. He brought Moses up on the mountain for how long? Forty days, twice in a row. That dude was hungry. Um, he, he fasted there, but he gave him instructions to do what? What were the instructions about? They were, they were certainly the law, but he also gave him a model of the tabernacle, right? And what was God going to do in that tabernacle? His presence would dwell in the midst of the people. And so Israel builds the tabernacle and they are encamped about it with the tabernacle far on the outside, right? Clear up far away on Mount Olympus. All right. It was in the middle, right? The tabernacle is in the middle of the people. Because the indwelling of God's presence lies at the center of his relationship with his people. The indwelling of God's presence lies at the center of his relationship with his people. He desires to be relationally present with us. And he desires that we be relationally present with each other too. Just like that, just like he, with him. He said to Israel as he entered his covenant with them, he said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in your midst. And he really did come and dwell in their midst then. If we go to Exodus 40, go to the end of Exodus, the very last chapter, the last few verses of the chapter, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud resided there, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. He did. He came in and dwelled. The glory of the Lord came in. in the, into the camp, in the middle of the people. A couple of million people are, are, surround, are surrounding, and there the Lord is in the middle of them. If we go to 1 Kings as well, we see something very, very similar. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is no longer the tabernacle. This is the temple. The dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, at the dedication of the temple, in verse 10, it says, Now the priest came out of the holy place. When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Adonai so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Adonai, filled the house of the Lord so the same thing happened right it was very similar in the sense that in these verses that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle it filled the temple and Moses and the people the priests they couldn't stand they couldn't go and minister they were just in awe of God's glory it was just too much for them too powerful for them but God was definitely in their midst and this is really critical for us to understand because his eminence, don't you get that word, eminence, his eminence, his ability to dwell with us is, is really important. He's revealing how he wants to live in and among us in these senses as a people, right? We know that he walked in the garden with Adam, okay? We know that. But what we're seeing is, is the sense that he wants to dwell with groups of people as well. He's, he's doing this as part of Israel's national identity, right? But we also see his, his transcendence, God's transcendence, and his eminence really truly coming into fruition through Yeshua as he, as he comes in the flesh. As God takes on the flesh of a man and comes in the flesh, we see that eminence, that transcendence, his otherness colliding with his eminence there right? He was fully God, fully man. He wanted to be in relationship with his people. I think we have a distraction in the middle of the room here. A cute little boy. (laughs) We see this in Yeshua, though. His eminence wanting to be with us so much that he gave himself up. He was a sacrificial, ato- in, sacrificial in his atonement for us. He gave himself up so that he could be with us. I'm not going to go through it. We could read the whole of the gospel story, all the gospels, to see all the examples of his imminence, his wanting to be with us, all the things that he did, and the relationships that he formed along the way. We could see that. We could walk through all that. And then in, in John 14, 15, though, he promised the gift of the Ruach, the gift of the Spirit, so that his transcendence, his eminence, it wouldn't just go away, it wouldn't just go away when he ascended, right? But it, it would be in us. And he, he continues to display that, that otherness, and his relational presence with us through his Holy Spirit. And so, I want us to keep this in mind in want to kind of talk for a minute about why i'm sharing this message today and this is kind of the closing of my message why am i sharing this today well we we've just had thanksgiving okay it's it was really wonderful um, for me and for many here as you as you've already testified um but i really want to encourage us because There are some people who have devalued the relational presence of the Lord, I feel like. So I want to encourage us to to understand its value and to encourage others in that too, the relational presence of the Lord and his desire for us to have relationship with one another. Okay, I want to really just strongly encourage that. His desire for us to have a relationship with the Lord and with one another. Um, You know, I've seen other people here at Remnant elevating open-handed theology over relational presence to the point that they leave because of it. That they're like, nope, I cannot continue to be in relationship with you here. I've been here for a while, but I'm going to leave and, and, and the, they tell me the reasons, and I'm like, really? Like, because of that? Like, yep. Because they have these things that are, again, open-handed, or should be open-handed, but they're like, nope, that's more important than us being in relationship with each other. Um, and, and then I've seen those people, and they go and become lo- lonely, and they feed the cycle, you know, where they're like, I just can't find that perfect congregation, you know, and that's, that's those people, right? And I know you guys have heard the, the cliche phrases, there's no such thing as a perfect congregation, and if you found it, you're not, you're, you need to leave because you just made it imperfect or something like that, you know. <laughs> but the point is that these people become lonely, And they feed the cycle, and they they have less trust, and they become suspicious, and we need to encourage them in the relationship aspect here, in the understanding of the importance of the relationship aspect. You know, some people here, though, that, you know, a lot of people here come from other congregations, okay? Uh, Very few people have grown up at Remnant of Israel. After all, we're, like, about to celebrate our 25th anniversary. Um, But people... um, Maybe didn't leave their church but they were told to leave that's happened to some people they were told to leave because of theological differences and that broke relationships that they didn't want to break but it did break them and that caused loneliness as well it destroyed trust and if that happened to people here i'm really sorry that that happened to to you that that is something that we want to be able to work have God heal and restore. We believe that God can heal and restore the heart, the trust, the relationships because of that. Um, That that really makes me sad when when that happens. Um, When someone's told to leave for those reasons. But, but, But then there's other people, they've really bought into this notion that it's better to avoid the prospect of the stickiness of relationships. The because sometimes they're challenging, sometimes they're disappointing. And they avoid them, they, or they 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 avoid those relationships altogether, and or they keep relationships shallow. It's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go deep with you because I'm afraid I'm I'm afraid of that. I really don't have a, a level of trust, or I'm afraid that it's going to be broken again. And so because I've been I've seen relationships broken in the past, and so I don't really have the trust to let relationships go deep again in, inside the body. And I've seen this happen. And what happens there, though, is that you fail to progress in spiritual health when, when, you're, when you're in that situation because you, you're not allowing people to truly encourage you for where you are actually at because no one ever actually gets to know you, right? So you are stiff-arming people who want to love you and encourage you, and build you up, to let iron sharpen iron, right? Because we don't let people get to know us when we do that, or vice versa. We are not able to be used in the kingdom if we never get to know other people in a meaningful way. And, and I will say, there's a corrective aspect to this too, Sometimes I need correction, and sometimes each of us needs healthy correction as well within the body, but yet if we don't develop relationships, correction is really hard to receive, really hard to receive, um, but God, I believe, calls us to healthy correction in our relationships um, because we can, we need to be the, the so, in our, in our understanding of God and theology, I mean, just an example, you know, Paul, he corrected Peter when Peter was eating, not eating, I should say, with people he used to eat with. And he said, you're wrong, buddy. And you need to change your ways. Right? But they could do that because they had relationship with each other. He could call them out that way. Right? And we need that correction sometimes. So, Are relationships work? Yes, they are. Relationships in the body of Messiah, they are work. Yes, they are work. Uh, We call call them covenant relationships, and when we have new members, we're going to introduce new members here in a few weeks. Um, We'll talk about the covenant of the Mishpachah, that it's a covenant relationship. Being in a covenant doesn't make it easy though, right? Uh, A marriage relationship is a covenant. (laughs) Is a marriage relationship always easy? No? Just because it's covenant? No? <laughs> it's not always easy, right? Um, the reality is, though, we need these relationships with each other. We need this covenant relationship with one another, and we need it so that we can be a healthy and functioning body. Okay? I could go all the way back into my sermon that I preached a year or two ago about the, the, the gifts and the parts of the body, right? and how we all work together. Um, I'm not going to today. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up here, but I'm, I am planning to go into and start going through Scripture and really exploring more in-depth God's relational presence with us. Okay? Um, just scratching the surface this morning. So I just want to encourage us today, this is my encouragement for us, to persevere towards encouraging and strengthening relationships with each other as we depend on God for his relational presence. He gives us a relational presence. We have that with him first and foremost, and then we have relationship with one another in the body that God created. He intends for us. Yes, it's not always easy, but it is worth it. It is worth it for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen.